Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by my friend John Presnell. Hello John, how are you doing? I'm doing very well Titus, I'm glad to be here. Today we're talking about Jaws, 1975. So we'll get to talk a bit about the 70s and we have to remind our audience that this is one of the original blockbusters, a massively successful movie, four Oscar nominations and three victories, the genre picture that got a Best Picture nomination. Maybe the Academy recognized some of the greatness we want to outline in this discussion. And everything is happening in anticipation of the bicentennial of the Declaration. The American second century is over. And it's the mid-70s, so it's a crazy age. So maybe this is where we should start. It's a scary movie, there's a monster, there's horror, there's evil you have to deal with. How could that happen in America in the 70s? Why aren't things better and more peaceful? Yes, so in the 70s, obviously we're coming out of Vietnam. 75 is the famous pictures of the helicopters taking off the embassy in Saigon. And of course, we're just after Watergate. And whatever the 60s revolutions that were supposed to transform society have failed. And of course, we also have great economic troubles and the oil shortages and the gas lines and all the kinds of problems in the economy heading towards stagflation. Right here on the eve of the bicentennial, where we're celebrating 200 years of liberty and the American government and self-government. So this movie reflects a certain unease. The 70s in general, in particular 70s cinema, reflects this. Here we've been for 200 years, and yet we're stuck with these immense problems in the economy, and we're still in the Cold War, and there's a crime wave, and ordinary lives of Americans are not looking so great, and the prospects don't look good. So that's part of the problem. Things that could have been dealt with at the political level weren't, like the fact that liberals hated Nixon, and that Nixon had a lot of sins and some crimes to his name. They metamorphosed into national crisis that shook everybody's confidence in both the nation and the office, and liberals were as guilty of it as everybody else, and so with all these other crises that, instead of getting solved, get worse. The crime waves are getting worse, and all of a sudden now you have to deal with the evil of serial killers shocking Mm -hmm. people, and at the same time some of these big cities are going bankrupt like New York City, Mm -hmm. and you think, this is not progress anymore. This is hurting real people, not just a bunch of ideologues or a bunch of activists or one party wins, the other loses. It's a bummer. It's hurting the people. So there is an atmosphere of anxiety that somehow has to be dealt with. And at the same time, as we see in the movie, this is quite revealing about the character of America, about where leadership, heroism, manliness stand in America, about citizenship and deliberation in a community, about Mm -hmm. cities and escaping the cities, Mm -hmm. twin American passions. And I started thinking about this movie because of you. I remember reading some thoughts you had, I think, after the election, you pointed out, and we will try to argue that, the madman shark hunter World War II veteran in the movie played by Robert Shaw with Gusto, Quint, he's not a nice guy, but he's a necessary guy. In a time That's of right. crisis, when people are losing their minds, you're going to have to face the ugly stuff. So here we have these crises that seem to be ongoing, and nothing or no one seems to be able to stand up to do anything about them. 
So here we see in this movie, the town of Amity, and then we have this guy, Quint, and he is, as we're told later in the movie, certifiable. He's an outsider. He's a obsessive. He's a madman. And here we are in this crisis, and nobody seems to know what to do, and yet he steps in somehow, or he's the last resort that even the community has to turn towards as at least a part of the source of their salvation. And, you know, in the 1970s, you see this destruction of any attempt of individuals who could stand up here. You mentioned the serial killers. We just walk down the street and we don't know if we're going to be dead. And this is a line straight out of Jaws where Chief Brody, he says, in New York, we're all just sitting ducks and nobody seems to be able to do anything about it. And so it's interesting that this film shows at least one man and the characteristics that he has as somehow being able to provide, in part at least, what is needed, even though he's presented as a madman. Yeah, and his madness consists in two parts. One of it is he really is crazy. The other one, however, is that he just looks crazy to people who don't want to face up to evil. That's right. And so he's not sufficient to deal with the drama or the problem, but he's irreplaceable. And that's a lesson that's just part of American life. And uh, learning it again and again seems to be a necessity of American life as well. He is the anti-Carter. He's not going right. to try to hold your hand and promise you he'll never lie to you and be a nice guy. Or because... even before, the constitutional nightmare has been concluded. I forget the exact language he said. Yes. But, uh, we'll just pardon Nixon and now I'm president and we can move on. Well, Quint's got something to say about that. And circumstances will have something to say about that, regardless of our speech and our intentions. So Quint is always in the shadows there. Yes, but of course we have to work our way to him. Quint dominates the second half of the movie. That's right. As you put it, that's Man at Sea. But the first part is the city of Amity and America on land. Here, he is almost invisible. In fact, all these three men who are at the center of the plot, this great, manly, crazy guy, Quint, Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider, the quintessential American leader, responsible mm -hmm. to the people and tied up to them, but at the same time, somehow out of place and mm -hmm. not really at home with them. And third, the Richard Dreyfus character, who is a scientist, a marine biologist, in the first half, however, they barely come to sight. Our view of them is obstructed by the town of Amity, by America right. at leisure. It's <laughs> uh, 1975. This is a perfect little island town off the coast of New England where people can go and run from the present of America into an idealized past. The houses look old. Everything looks quaint. There's no violence, no anxiety. Lots of white picket fences. Exactly. There you can run from the crazy busyness and restlessness of the city and just stop doing anything. Just sit in the sun. It appeals to the lizard part of the American soul. You just <laughs> want to soak right. up some heat. That's and right. Of course, we all need that now and then. And it reveals something about what our city lives do to us. This pleasant little place, however, must have been at some point a real town where people worked for a living and made a living and lived. Whaling or something like that. It's New England. That's right. This island town of Amity, New England, this has some resonance with some Puritan founding. At some point would have been a fisherman and whaling and trading. And this was hard work and dangerous work where men would go offshore and maybe not come back. But we had a community here and that was the old economy, whether it was whale oil or cod or what have you. One of the older fishermen in town, his name is Silva, Portuguese or Azor 
Azore name. In New England, you have a lot of these Portuguese sailors and fishermen who were big in the cod trade. So that was the old economy. And around that could have established a community which would have had its foundings in amity and friendship and our reliance upon each other as a community. Now, yes. circa 1975, we see those days are over and amity is now a place where the economy and the people can make a living off of precisely what you were saying, that vacating from the city for a relaxation on the shore, on the beach, and do nothing and spend money. But that's how the they have to fill up the hotels and the restaurants and the souvenir shops and what have you, or day fishing or whatever. Yeah, so the little town of Amity on the island has lost its own past or any connection to it, but it functions as a idealized past for city people <laughs> who never had such a past. But they need it. They need some kind of relaxation and some escape from an age and an anxiety that they can't deal with. At the same time, however, you see that this little place has its own uh, business imperatives. A local chamber of commerce who have to manage the money, the tourism, to make it all turn out just right. So this way of life has its own demands. And you can see that maybe they have taken friendship, amity, to a certain extreme in their desire to advertise themselves. They're proud that there hasn't been any murdering here since I don't <laughs> know when. It's the <laughs> city of peace itself. You wonder whether people are even mortal there, like the islands of the blessed. <laughs> and uh, you see throughout the stories that people have sold themselves so much on this idea of peace and no danger and no evil because they have to sell themselves if they're going to sell the rest of America on it. Mm -hmm. They certainly sold Chief Brody on it. He That's used to right. be a cop in New York City up until the wife decided that they had kids and they needed a future, even one in the past. It's better than the crazy city. So now he's chief. He enforces the law in a town where apparently there is no need for laws or their That's enforcement. Right. As you put it, Chief Brody says, in the city we're all just sitting ducks. It's such a big place with such big problems that no individual can really be human. Amity is built it, on a human scale. That's right. But a New York, half of New humanity York? has been exterminated by incessant goodness. The dark mm -hmm. passions of the soul can find no expression here. That does introduce the character Brody, so his motivations to go to Amity. He's not a New Englander. He has to practice his accent in one of the first scenes. Yad and Ka. His wife still says, well, you still sound like a New Yorker. Later, Brody tells us, you know, New York is just crime after crime after crime. And as a cop, it just never ends. And so individual can't do anything. And of course, in the context with the wife and two young boys, perhaps Amity, the job opens. They need somebody to be the police chief there. He jumps at that. But what's the worst crime that's going to happen in Amity? A terrorist gets out of line or something. Surely no murder, let alone a shark attack. So you wonder what he's doing there. And of course, he has this weird characteristic. He doesn't like the water. He's afraid of the water. Water. So it's incongruous motivations for the security that Amity would provide. Yet at the same time, he thinks he can be an individual there. And yet at the same time, he lives on an island where at some point, at least, he's going to have to confront the water, but maybe only the beach as opposed to going offshore. Yeah, this guy has been brought in because he's a real cop from a real town, but he's only there for show. Nobody expects him to do anything because there's no need for somebody like him. Mm -hmm. He just has to put on a show of security in this little paradise. And as you put it, he himself just doesn't fit here. He's making his home there, but the locals don't want him there exactly. Yeah. He's not one of them, and he's never going to be one of them. But even more so, what would it mean for them to accept that they need this policeman who comes from a city where evil is real and can strike at any moment. 
they would have to accept about themselves that they are weak, endangered, exposed to evil, mm-hmm. and they don't want to do that. So they have an added reason to be resentful of the only guy going around town with a gun and authority. There's a sense of complacency. I suspect also a sense of prettying up. I doubt that the picket fences were as white and the signs as well painted back in the days of the fishermen and the whalers. But uh, so now it's prettified up and on the beach. What's the worst that's going to happen? A sunburn. And it's a in-between space between the sea and the land. And so Brody, this landlubber, is uh, perfectly fine. But of course, now he has nothing to do. But the community, I point out, the billboard tells us it's the 50th anniversary of the 4th of July, even though we're on the eve of the bicentennial, 1776. But this community, you could see that since security, perhaps, they've been lulled into this because they've had 50 years of 4th of July fun and without any major incident. And so Brody can carry a gun because he doesn't really matter and they don't need him. Yeah, he has got to be taken unseriously to be tolerable. And you're right, these people aren't preparing for the 200th American celebration because it's a bit exhausting to stand up for America in that way. They can celebrate their own little traditions and their own little achievements because those matter to them. And this disjunction between your 4th of July and America's 4th of July shows they're Americans. They want to take America for granted and their right to a successful, happy life. But they don't want to necessarily put in the hard work required. Or maybe it's the dirty work. That's right. Who, circa 1975, Amity, thinking about it, would pledge their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor with any real intent. Their tradition brings in money to the town. It brings in tourists. They're proud of that. And, and they should be proud of it. They've, they've created a nice little New England community here. And people enjoy this. But they have been lulled into a sense that nothing bad, therefore, could happen. This can continue, despite the fact that I'm sure they can watch television like anyone else and see the crime in the cities, see the economic downturn, see Vietnam, see various kinds of violence going on in the cities. Amity's escaped from that. Yeah, somehow Amity is not part of the news cycle and it's not part of history, therefore, either. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit of America frozen in time, but which soon learns to deal with being American. This starts out with kids and a bit Mm -hmm. of excess and a bit of crazy things at night. A girl Mm -hmm. making eyes at a guy. They're trying to go skinny dipping and then a shark eats her. This was not rare in 70s horror. The young, careless Americans are going to buy it. But it's not supposed to be any puritanism or moral criticism. It's only supposed to point out that these kids live in a charmed circle made by their parents, but their parents can't protect them anymore. That's correct. It's Chief Brody, who's not one of the locals, who sees what's left of this dead girl and sets in motion this investigation and that every step is met with people who don't really want to take it seriously. That's right. Who deny that there was any evil there. Sure, that happened, but let's just say a boat propeller did it. (laughs) As though that doesn't raise any questions about how you end up dead by boat propeller. Well, so much so. The medical examiner types in shark attack. So that's... That's the first designation of this young girl's death. Immediately, Brody goes into action. He's going to do what needs to be done. He says, where are the beach closed signs? And everybody's response is, what? What are you talking about? We don't have signs that say beach closed. So he goes, one man, to the hardware store to get the signs. But it's later that he's pressured by the mayor, the editor, and the medical examiner himself turns tail immediately and says, well, boat propeller. This surely couldn't be a shark attack. Yeah, there you see that when the authorities in the town are forced to deal with something terrible, 
who's going to stand up for this woman's dignity in death by finding out what happened to her and doing justice? You know, we're not going to deal with that because mm-hmm. publishing this ugly truth is bad for business. That's right. Terrorist season's coming up. And you'd have to make a sacrifice for the sake of justice. Nobody wants to do that. Chief Brody doesn't want to do it either. He just thinks it's a job. You got to do it because it's safety. But mm-hmm. he doesn't make it into a crisis. He doesn't say either we do this or I resign and I yes. shout at everybody in town or what have you. Because that's an unreasonable thing to do. That's more Quint than Brody, so to speak. That's right. That's right. Brody knows that you have to live with people and you got to get along. And if they don't want to listen, you can't exactly force them. They believe they have a right to their business and profits to such an extent that they're not going to bother with a small issue of a dead girl. Let alone the protection of others, too, because the shark could still be on the prowl. Yeah, they can't think that other people are endangered as well. That's how much you can get used to having it good. Mm -hmm, For sure. You end up uh, insisting on one thing alone, and that is not to be bothered. Not to have to face the question of evil if it should emerge. And if it stares you in the face, apparently you can blink. It's strange how mundane all the presentation is and how every day everything looks there when it's broaching this enormous question. But it begins to show you that no more than we, the audience, are they, the population of Amity, ready to face this squarely. That's right. It requires, at least for the beginnings of an action, a second victim. And Brody, who is acquiesced in this, but is incredibly nervous, he won't let his sons even play on the pier with their new boat. But the beach opens, and he sits on the beach in his little beach chair, totally on edge. As the camera's playing, we see the dog in the water, we see an elderly woman go in bathing, and we're just waiting, of course, for any moment for one of them to go. And of course, one of them does go, and it's a young boy. It's a pretty horrific attack. We see a nice stream of blood come up, and now we know we've got something serious. So the community, once is a propeller, the second in front of our eyes, now we know we're up to something different. Yeah, this is a commentary on American government. In the first instance, you have the authorities who are delegated to run things for us. They have to make a decision among themselves on evidence that is available only to them. It is Mm -hmm. their failure that then brings this evil in the midst of everybody, and they make the democratic decision. They wake up and see the blood and run off terrified. Mm Mm-hmm. Nobody prepared the people for evil, and the leaders didn't want to face it themselves. And that's how the catastrophe came. That's right. The mayor, having the best interests of the community, seeing terrorism coming on, realizes, you know, shark attack is just going to kill tourist season. So it's a boat propeller. Now the community at the beach, because we're still not at the 4th of July weekend, you know, are eyewitnesses to this horrific attack. Now there has to be a response. So their interpretation of what their best interests are might be different. And of course, this leads to the classic New England town hall meeting and decision of what to be done about this potential danger of the shark out there eating them. And yet the town hall is somewhat of a failure, but it's a brilliant scene. The mayor calls this town hall meeting and we have the citizens there. We hear a lot of discussion among citizens. There's a local motel owner and and how dare beaches be closed because after all, she needs people to rent out her rooms. And we get this sense that nobody in the community wants the beach closed. There's one person who wants something to be done, and that's the mother of the boy's victim. She has put up $3,000 of her own money as a bounty. Whoever kills the shark will get $3,000. 
And this town hall deliberation, self-government ends up in screaming voices, a cacophony, and we don't really see any sense of what the best interests of the community would be. Once the people, after an eyewitness account of the shark attack, have seen that, well, maybe there's a real threat here we need to confront. And nobody particularly is going to step up. Brody calls for closing of the beaches, but it's agreed, well, we'll figure out a way to not close the beaches, but still protect the people. And meanwhile, we have the bounty. And of course, Here's our first introduction to Quinn with the nails on the chalkboard. He has drawn on the chalkboard this giant shark with this little bitty man inside of the teeth. So he says, I'll do it for 10 grand. You people don't know what's up. He does say something to the fact you all know me. You know who I am. I can get it. But everybody just thinks, what a loon. And he leaves. So the agreement is keep the beaches open with shark patrols. And that $3,000 bounty, of course, leads to a mob of people seeking after fortune in hopes of killing the shark. But it's quite a commentary on what has become, or maybe what always was, of the sense of communitarian deliberation when it gets mixed up with individual interests. And when we recognize that the community itself, at least its economy, is dependent upon this economic interest. And we have a conflict here. This is the second commentary on government, and it also showcases failure, but of a different kind. All of a sudden, it says those authorities, they were right. The people just don't want to know. <laughs> you can kill a child in front of them, and they'll look the other way. And again, it is reasonable to think this is not a plague come to doom us. It's not World War III. It's not a nuclear attack. It's not really the sort of thing you want to panic about. But the suggestion is that the townspeople have forgotten that they're American. They don't know how to do deliberation because mm -hmm. they've forgotten that they're human. That is to say that they're tied up with good and evil and mortality and that there is something holy about being human. That mm -hmm. dead child only matters to his mother. This is a shocking moment, but of course it's something that America goes through constantly. For sure. Because people are practical and you have to go on with life. Not even America is God's own country. We're still mm -hmm. just people. But it's very hard to take it. We're in such a terrible position and the only guy who knows evil can smell it in the wind and is thrilled, Quint, <laughs> He just thinks these people are losers. You can't deliberate with them. Let them turn from stupidity and complacency to hysteria and terror, and then I'll write my own ticket and I will deliver them from evil. I, there's five shark attacks in the movie. Quint, of course, being the last, the only one we see. It's the only one that seems to have meaning. The unfortunate thing of the previous four is you just, the girls eaten, the boys eaten. We see that a little bit more detail. We find some dead body here and the community moves on. Somehow the community can't recognize their own participation in the fate of these victims. The only time that we, even the audience, are able to see the brutality of it, but also see what is sacrificed and what is lost is Quint. But that's jumping ahead. But yeah, the community... but you're right. This is something that we should introduce now. The community fails to be much of a community. It's a betrayal of the stuff we read about in Tocqueville. Americans associate for private and for public ends. They find out what they have in common and how they get it done. Not here. And instead, Tocqueville warns us Americans are threatened by individualism. They are so caught up in their own private life or with a few friends or a job that they can't bear to assume responsibility for bigger things. They can't stand up and lead. They can't make themselves believe that they matter and that they'll matter to other people and that some authority for a common good can be imposed. And that's why only the one guy who really is a manly hero and who served America is a veteran. Only mm -hmm. he gets this incredibly graphic death that showcases his struggle and in his failure nevertheless shows his individuality. 
judge. He's not nobody. That's right. He's the one who went to his death willingly. Everybody else was just an unknowing victim. He faced evil knowingly. And that's admirable, actually. Mm -hmm. It's also crazy, but it's also admirable. And that's where the story tends to precisely because of these failures of government, of association, of deliberation. These shark hunters come up because there's a bounty on it and it's fun. They have no (laughs) idea what the hell they're doing. And that doesn't end so well. But somebody comes up with a tiger shark and finally we have dispelled evil. The community is not capable of judging these things. It would need to be able to trust that experts will give a true opinion because of their love of the community, because of their shame to lie to their fellow citizens. Enter Hoover. That's right. uh, Yeah, this introduces us to finally an expert that Americans can trust. (laughs) Why? Because he's Mr. Science and science is disinterested. We know that we ourselves are such partisans of our menial self-interest that we can't trust each other. We always speak in principles and in big professions of faith, but we also know that we're not really that principled. We would compromise. (laughs) And so you got to find some neutral authority that you wouldn't be ashamed of and that wouldn't humiliate you by saying, I am more man than you. So you come up with this scientist who's an expert on sharks that nobody could possibly be impressed with, much less scared of, because it's Richard Dreyfuss. It's Richard Dreyfuss, exactly. Playing his Richard Dreyfuss-ness as he does it, with that laugh and that giggle. But he brings, of course, the expert knowledge. He understands these beings. We learn he has this lifelong fascination with them from a childhood experience, where a shark ate his own boat. But he's devoted his life to studying them. He's from the outside, and we're not really sure exactly where he's from. He's independently wealthy, so he's been able to pay for his own marine biological and oceanographic education out of his own personal family wealth. But he's called upon from something like Woods Hole Institute in Massachusetts to assist in dealing with this predator He's not threatening, yet he can present the case in a way that won't touch upon my particular interest if I were, say, a motel owner in Amity. What do we do? We have a problem. We have to turn to the neutral experts. Let's get the facts. In the line of the facts, then we can have a more informed deliberation. And this surely will lead us to the proper decision that will effectively deal with the problem confronting us. So he's introduced in that way, at least. Yes. And so you can see how this might lead to a future where we avoid politics and just defer to bureaucrats and experts. Mm -hmm. And that is part of America's future, unfortunately, because we won't deal with our own problems. But it also makes a mockery of what people really are and what they could know. They hope they can be delivered from a crisis without having to put anything on the line themselves. They don't even want to be involved in decisions. That's why you need a detached expert, because otherwise you'd have to use your judgment. This guy is, for that reason, an interesting character. He wouldn't fit in America otherwise. He's a scientist and independently wealthy. Two signs of a strange aristocratic character. He's not interested in these people or their lives. He's never been there and he's never coming back. It's not personal in any way to him. He cares more about sharks than people. Well, remember, he's just there for a brief period because he's got some gig down in Australia studying whatever marine biology. And And by no stretch of the imagination is he a bad guy. But he's not going to be your hero. 
hero because he doesn't care about him. That's right. Uh, and that reveals in a way in which maybe only Richard Dreyfuss can reveal that <laughs> the authority <laughs> of science includes no goodness for you. <laughs> That's right. It's so he, if you think of our three major characters in relationship to the town, Sheriff Brody is from the outside and he's brought to the inside, but just somebody there to signify law and order where we don't need law and order. And then, of course, we have Hooper, who's from the outside. But where is Hooper at any place? He's always at sea. He doesn't come from anywhere. He comes from the neutral language of science with its Latin terms. And then, of course, we have Quint, and he's a local, but he's excluded from the community. The community can't seem to make up its mind what to do. It does know it wants to keep its own interest, but it doesn't seem to connect itself in any way to these shark attacks. Hence, it's left to these three characters, perhaps in spite of the community, whatever it is they each individually bring to it to somehow master and conquer this threat. Yep, you could say that the last two notes on community are, on the one hand, just like you have these thrill-seeking shark hunters who think that yeah. they're just the boys to do it. You have these kids who pull a prank by pretending to be a shark yeah. in the water to terrify everybody because that's how we raise children. They think this is funny. They don't understand that evil is real. They just realize that it scares us and they have their resentments against us, the adults, and so they think this is a that's smart right. thing to do. It's their own if little you... revenge on us. The disruptions in the community begin with kids from the karate club destroying some guy's fence. They're karate chopping it. Then we have, of course, the vandalism of the Amity poster with the girl on the raft who have added the shark fin and she has the caption, oh my God, a shark. And then we have the kids who pretend to be the shark. So we have this mischief. That's what Brody's brought in to deal with. He's not brought in to deal with the shark. And Brody does step up. His action immediately is, let's close the damn beach. But the community can't do that. That outsiderness of his, perhaps understanding real evil from his time in New York. And of course, Quint, he knows from the get-go what needs to be done. And Hooper, he does not see the shark in many respects as evil, as a scientist would not see it as evil. Yeah. It's rather an eating machine. One night they go looking for the shark, they find the sinking boat, and Hooper thinks, you know what, I'll get into my scuba gear and just go underwater there, see what happens. <laughs> Brody thinks yeah, this no is crazy deal. because that shark is going to come eat you up. Even after he says they like to hunt at night. <laughs> so, but he's got the lights on his boat, so that will scare the shark. His technology, the boat is something you know, straight yeah, out. That is a childish fun. fantasy. But yeah. yeah. And of course, in some sense, he's right. Come on, it's a one in a million chance. At best. Right. But things are a bit different now. And then that scene reveals how silly Hooper himself is. He gets underwater, he sees there's a hole in the boat side, he finds a shark tooth there. He later says it's the size of a shot glass. Yeah, right. That Could should give you a sense of of the great danger they're supposed to deal with. And, but then and, a and corpse pops out of the ship's side and he's so scared he drops both the tooth and his flashlight and he That's swims right. off to safety. It turns out he had never considered that life and death are involved in this. It was just a bit of curiosity for him. Now he's right. beginning to be more serious. Of course, the other thing that happens in town before we set off to sea is that in the little pond where the old people are supposed to swim, <laughs> where we're all protected from the sea, the shark gets in and kills somebody. That's right. At that point, people are finally willing to admit that there is evil in this world and they're not in control. 
up till now they thought either it's not real or we're in control of it. It's important, as you pointed out, that the only people who are willing to talk about evil are the kids who have no idea what it is. Yeah. At some level, the adults know what it is, and that's why they're hiding. Mm-hmm. That's why they're pretending that they can be in control of things. That defamation of the billboard, you have this great argument between Hooper, the scientist, and Brody, the chief, and the mayor, and argument is the wrong term. It is a screaming at each other where nobody's listening to anything. And I even was watching it with the subtitles to see if I could figure out what the hell either of them were saying, and none of them make any sense. And yet behind them all is this Finn going to eat this girl on her ass. So those children are quite aware exactly what's at stake, and the adults scream yeah. at each other. I mean, these scenes are hilarious, and they're also <laughs> astute about what's going on here. And this leads us to the second half, to the men at That's sea. Right. Will they or nil they, they have to deal with this. They recruit Quint, and they see where it is that Quint lives, among the shark teeth and skulls <laughs> and all these things that you aptly call the reliquary, the death and the dying and the killing and the evil of nature are a living presence for him just as much as they have been wiped out from the rest of the city. It's like a cemetery. Yeah, that's right. This is his temple. This is his reminder of evil. But this is a man who has obsessed for however many years of shark hunting. He is skilled. And yet he has this jaunty, yet crude, salty seaman's language. And he makes his own hooch. He boils shark's teeth. And he's the man that the town now has to turn to, whom just before we saw them as thinking of him as a madman. Yep, he turns out to have the expertise and the willingness and the boat needed to kill sharks. And he wants to go it alone because he has nothing but contempt for everybody else. Nevertheless, it's a deal with the town and so Chief Brody insists on being part of the expedition and the scientist is along for the ride as well. Mm -hmm. Now, it's pretty clear that the scientist has no idea what he's getting into, but Mm -hmm. he does come prepared as best he can. Whereas Chief Brody does it because he feels personally responsible. that's right. as well as we know that it wasn't his fault that all these other people got killed because he wanted to do the right thing. But he still feels responsible. There is something to leadership and responsibility that moves in the direction of heroism, not in the direction of obeying the most corrupt and blind orders you can find. I and agree. So Here, he feels he has to go. Here's this man who we know is actually afraid of the water. And yet because of his sense of responsibility for what has happened to this poor boy and the mother slapped him in the face and holding him personally responsible, even though we know that he's at best partly responsible, he takes this burden upon himself and he's got to do something against his own instincts. He's called upon to act a hero. He's going to do it. And he himself finds Quint. Quint is a hard person to get to know, let alone get to like, but he's going to do it. You know, Hooper does bring one thing, the scientist, the Richard Dreyfus character. Where obviously, all his experience at sea, he knows how to tie knots. So he has a certain technical skill, and he knows how to sail. Of course, America's Cup, uh, yachting, uh, yacht racing. So Brody has this sense of responsibility, and now we see a mustering up of individual courage, even to leave his family behind and maybe not come back. Hooper has not courage, but a technical know-how. And, of course, Quint doesn't want anything to do with Hooper, but he'll take him once he ties a knot. So we've got these three guys together, but it's Quint's boat, and he insists that he is captain. Yep, so unlike in the city here, you see virtues, knowledge, and hierarchy Mm -hmm. all outlined because now they have a common purpose and they can act. 
this is where we begin to learn positive lessons about America. Mm-hmm. That this loser Hooper, who's a scientist with a vaguely aristocratic, disinterested life, is competent, actually. He knows the sea. He doesn't know enough to be afraid to need courage, but his pacifist insanity mm-hmm. has not stunted his uh, acquisition of all sorts of skills. He's his own man. And our man Brody, who is uh, closer to us than these guys, he has no expert knowledge. He's not a specialist. He knows people, however. He knows America, and he is American. He typifies a form of American leadership. He takes responsibility. He takes the blame. He deals with all the annoyances and with with the anger and the conflicting claims to honor and justice that drive people to hate each other or to scream at each other, and he bears up under all of it. He is mm-hmm. not quick to action. He's not particularly strong or tough, but he bears a lot. He has an unusual endurance, and he gradually throughout the second half shows how important it is. And so they end up hunting the shark, and we learn that they don't really know what they're doing because they're facing something that's not a mere shark. We've already seen a dead shark and a pretty aggressive big tiger shark at that, but this is something different. Only now do we begin to see that this is less of a monster movie and more of Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. These are men who have to confront the truth about nature. Their own virtues come out as they begin to need them to survive precisely because they're facing up against something evil something that will test their mortality and maybe best them. And test the limits of all their knowledge and experience. Even Quint, at a certain point, realizes we're in over our heads. We know that Brody's already said, we're going to need a bigger bow, the famous line. There comes a point where even Quint is realizing we're way in over our heads. So we can't imagine nature in such a way as being this true test. So it's a test even to Quint, who has already been tested. So they're going to have to pull out certain resources within themselves and between each other that even Quint probably doesn't realize he ever had. In a way, there's a certain tragic trajectory to Quint's story or necessity of when we see him finally just gruesomely eaten by the shark. This is beyond their imaginings. Yeah, Quint is a tragic hero. He ends up with his own grand death and he's memorable. You see here a man running up against his limits and doing it, trying to stand up for being a man as such. So also Hooper is a sort of a comic hero. In a strange way, his cowardice sees him through. His fight with the shark is aborted. He lowers himself down in a cage in the way of modern science, and he's got a harpoon with poison because he's a modern scientist. He's going to take a very unmanly way to killing poison. He's lowered in the cage, Shark batters it, breaks it, and he runs and hides at the bottom of the sea. Waits it out. He's a comic. Brody's in between. He's Mm -hmm. often ridiculous and beaten down by events and circumstances, but he becomes, under the duress of events, angrier and manlier and more and more like Quint, although he had spent way more time in the first half with Hooper. And, of course, they are the two who survive because they're not Mm -hmm. excessively manly not so manly as to self-destruct. These three men are also arranged in some way in relationship to knowledge. Hooper has universal knowledge, he's a scientist, and that's why he takes such a detached attitude. At some level he's tempted by the speculative approach, and he doesn't realize that death is real and sharks will kill you, even though he has his own scars to show. That's right. He's he's not lived in academia. He knows the sea, but he never took it seriously. 
and at the extreme of the universal is Quint, who has very particular knowledge of shark hunting. He has mm -hmm. expertise and skills, but he never thinks about these things. He doesn't have any tendency to speculate. He has no interest in talking about it either, no tendency to generalize. Brody the chief is caught in between. He has no knowledge of anything except people and, of course, the law, mm -hmm. but he is more human because he is not pushed in either direction to the extreme of being a great hunter or a great scientist. And it seems to be that that's why he, who knows least about the sea, is best able to kill the shark in the end. Well, remember, you have to he tie up to he, being human very, very seriously to face up to evil. And he kills the shark with Quint's gun, but with Hooper's oxygen tank in the mouth. And so these two things, but it's Brody who has to somehow marry them. But at yes. the sacrifice of Quint. Yes, and of that's course, very you know, well put. And on this voyage, we begin to see, despite Quint's saltiness and gruffness, developing the friendship as well. So amity is friendship, but we begin to see a possible friendship between these three distinct characters when they have that wonderful scene, as you mentioned, of showing their scars from various adventures. And Quint, now we know his story of being part of the USS Indianapolis. They were delivering parts of the bomb for dropping on Hiroshima, uh, so it was all top secret. And as they were sailing away, they get torpedoed by a Japanese boat, thousand sailors into the ocean, and they are devoured by sharks. Hundreds of them killed. Quint is an Ahab character who has spent 30 years obsessing on this event as the natural enemy of these sharks. His boat, of course, is named the Orca. This is not necessarily subtle, but that scene is extraordinary where not only do we learn about Quint's past, but we see these three distinctive types can actually develop a certain bond, a bond through their experiences, showing their scars. There's a scene where Roy Scheider, Brody lifts his shirt up to show a bullet wound. So it's interesting that Amity, at least we see a certain kind of a camaraderie amongst men with no women and uh, being manly and confronting this nature that they, none of them, even Quint cannot quite imagine, and yet they pull it out of themselves to be able to conquer this thing. Yep, that is the climax of the movie, when once they realize that they're facing something greater than any of them, they pool their experiences and they, for a brief period, show this possibility of forming a different community, a community of men. They are all in the same danger. They all have proven themselves by facing death repeatedly. These outsiders finally form their own community, if right. only during a party, drinking, singing, in <laughs> speech. And this reveals two things. One of them, as you put it, it's Quint's story. Only now can it be told, because only these men could appreciate the truth it tells. Mm -hmm. Everybody else ignores that that exists. And the other thing it reveals is that death is coming. Yes. Without realizing it, what they are showing in showing their vulnerabilities is their impending death. And that's when the shark comes and attacks and starts breaking up their boat. And it turns out it's not an orca after all, not exactly. <laughs> this leads to this catastrophe. They try to run back to land, engine breaks down. They try to hunt the shark with the cage underwater. That breaks down. Then Quint is eaten. And that's when the compressed air tank mm -hmm. gets in the shark's mouth. And Brody becomes Quint, takes his gun okay. and shoots like crazy up until he finally blows the shark's head off. 
we should think of Quint's important role of allowing, in a way, Brody to become Quint. Because Brody, of course, wants to call the Coast Guard. And there's several scenes of which Quint distracts Brody from talking to his wife on the intercom. And then, of course, he just destroys the damn thing. And that's when, of course, Brody calls Quint certifiable. But Quint's up to something here. We need to tackle this thing on our own, in a self-sufficient manner, and with our own natural capacities insofar as we have them. And if we die, we die. But yourself is not going to be revealed to you or what you're capable of unless you do this on your own. That direct confrontation with a nature which is unfathomable. And that's a brilliant ploy there. I actually see him as a hero in a way, precisely in contrast to the first half of the movie. Quint is demanding that you confront this evil and Brody lives up to it. Yes, and so we end up with this strange conclusion. There's no future in America for Quint. He's dead, he'll be forgotten. These incredibly harsh men are a figment of the past. Maybe there's not a lot of place in the future for men like Hooper and Brody, except in their land-based capacity, mm -hmm. not what the sea reveals about mm -hmm. them. It is only in a crisis that the connection between responsibility, leadership, and manliness and heroism really shows up. Otherwise, it's something that cannot be part of civil life and therefore cannot be part of the self-knowledge of men, whatever their achievements might be. And, of course, what Quint's story reveals of being part of this thousand men, 800 of whom were eaten by sharks, it's that you're not in charge of events. That mm -hmm. when evil comes, it's not a matter of choice. That mm -hmm. manliness is, in a specific sense, superior to morality. Morality always tells you you have choices and you should make the right choice. And if you made the wrong choice, you deserve punishment and some education so that another time you could make the right choice because you could. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that's not how life works. Sometimes horrifying things come and you don't have a choice. That's, you know, in that scene of singing, I suppose, ironically, show me the way to go home. So we have this abstracted scientist who ultimately swims to the bottom of the sea to avoid the danger because he can't confront the reality of death and of evil. And then, of course, we have the exemplar of manliness in Quint. And, of course, then we have Brody. So we have this triad here, which together are able to defeat the shark but through the sacrifice of the manly one. As they swim to shore, now we just have Hooper and Brody, and they slowly swim to shore. And then as the final credits, we see this long shot with these little bitty people. So somehow Quint will be forgotten. It's a sacrifice, but maybe it's not going to find itself present again. These two little guys, whatever it is they have to author in tandem to each other, science and government, some kind of progressive notion to be able to manage that now without Quint, this is going to be an insignificance. And I suppose next crisis, who knows what's going to happen. Yep. And so with Quint, you see that manliness goes crazy in confronting evil because it might just not be enough. Maybe your orca isn't a real orca and maybe a cruiser like the USS Indianapolis is vulnerable too. You're never sufficient because you're not truly self-sufficient. But like in the Westerns, this manliness is absolutely necessary. And no future where things get civilized is possible without it. The suggestion seems to be, think to yourself, is this manly sacrifice and danger and daring of death something you can ever get rid of? Will mm -hmm. there never come a crisis in America again where it is again needed? 
will it be no. enough to have law enforcement and scientists and That's they'll right. fix the country for us? Is Why that, they it's, don't? It's kind of the Western print the legend and the legend seems to be sufficient. It surely is more in comportment with the attitude of the community, which has completely ostracized or kept outside whatever Quint had been all these years as just a kook and a crazy man. So you print the legend, but that legend is insignificant in the light of what might be needed, what Quint and his manliness represents, especially in a time of crisis. And you wonder that manliness, I suppose, you could see it in a very juvenile form and juvenile delinquency of the boys of the town who are able to see what's going on. So this is not something that is unnatural. But it seems as if the marriage of Brody and Hooper presents itself as being self-sufficient. And it needs that quint element, but that it's a sacrifice. And that's what the community is not willing to do. Yeah, exactly. It still is the case that horrifying violence claims American lives and we wonder what do we need to do. And it still is the case that we go to movies about catastrophes and about real evil because we know that at some level it's still in our hearts and it's still part of the world. We have not overcome it. Progress isn't that progressive. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's even bad because it blinds us to the truth about our nature and therefore about what we truly need. So it's a very ambiguous ending that suggests this is all that the movie can do. It can show you all these lessons about leadership, about community, about politics, about society. It can teach you that Americans have this way of working out, that mm -hmm. everybody wants to do whatever he wants. Don't tread on me. Don't you tell me what to do. Up mm -hmm. until a horror starts and everybody clamors for somebody to get something done. Do something, yes. Exactly. And from the egalitarianism of inaction to the inegalitarianism of sudden action, there you see a switch. There's not a lot of in-between. The story shows that at every level in between the harsh final action and the initial conditions that set it in motion and made it necessary, you just have a series of failures. That's, of course, some kind of lesson, but that's all that the movie can really do. That's right. It can't provide any resolution, but it can surely show, if we're attentive to it, it's an immensely entertaining movie. The early Spielberg is quite an entertaining and effective director, and it's brilliant, and it's a blockbuster. So you go to get entertained, and you go to get thrilled. But you think about it, and you begin to place some of these things together, and the movie forces us to reflect upon that which we cannot control, but which is within ourselves, and that includes, of course, evil and our necessity to be able to confront that and what that requires. It and just... that's what makes for movies that are worthwhile. They touch to an extent on greatness. Even if it is a blockbuster or just a B picture, it's a monster mm -hmm. picture, it at the same time is a reflection on why is it that we are thrilled? Why do we believe in dangers and heroes? It reveals American character. It reveals American society and American government. And it's therefore something worth reflecting on. To an extent, the movie is supposed to reconcile us to the way things are. It doesn't promise some kind of transformation. The next crisis will reveal the same things if you pay attention. Yeah. You can just yeah. deal with these problems better or worse. You cannot transform American character. You can mm -hmm. just deal with it with more prudence or less. That's what you're supposed to get out of this. You're supposed to say, yep, yeah, he gets us right. He knows what we love and fear at the same time. Yes. This is where we are. 
Yeah. Well, John, it has been a great discussion. Thanks for joining me again. I only started thinking about this movie because of you. I always knew it was a good movie, but before I read what you had to say, I didn't know why. What really is happening here? Of course, in this time in America, when leadership is such a crisis and such a continuous scandal and such a conflict between people who can't agree on what are the things that are necessary for Americans to come together, decide and act for the common good, Mm -hmm. it's a bit more urgent than it would have been otherwise. So thank you once more. Thank you. Glad to be here. And of course, we should tell our audience that our next project is another 70s movie that's supposed to reveal something about chaos in America. Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Absolutely. That'll be a good one, too. I'll be glad to be there, too. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, John. We owe you so much for your mastery of 70s cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this again soon. Okay. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.